Our God is a God of new beginnings. So, take a deep breath. Let go of yesterday. It is gone forever. And embrace this day, for this day is God's gift for you. And lift up your hearts and let's find God in each moment. And the question for this moment, for you and me today, is who will be on the throne? Because somebody's going to be on the throne of your life. If you've been a part of this journey as we've been walking through Genesis, you might remember on day seven, Genesis says that God rested. And we've looked at how this was a particular idea in the ancient world. Uh, God would rest in his temple. That's why a temple was built. And it didn't mean nothing was going on. A uh, king would rest on his throne in his palace. And what that meant was, that the order that was needed to set up the kingdom had been done, and now he could get on with establishing the kingdom. Kind of like you could set up a computer, and the reason that you do that is so that then you can begin to use it. So when God hits the seventh day, he's resting on his throne. That means he's going to be establishing his kingdom. That's good news for everybody. We see this, for example, in Psalm 132, verse 13 following. It says, For the Lord has chosen Zion, Jerusalem, He's desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned as I have desired it. So he's resting on his throne. Then he goes on. I will bless her, Israel, with abundant provisions, whether agriculture stuff going on every second all over the earth. The poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation and her saints will ever sing for joy. So God, when he rests on his throne, is doing good work in the kingdom. That's what happens on the seventh day. Something else to notice about the seventh day. You might have observed this kind of refrain through the first chapter of Genesis. God says, let there be light, separates light from the darkness verse 5, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then verse 8, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. 19, there was evening and morning the fourth day. Verse 23, and there was evening and morning the fifth day. Verse uh, 31, God saw all that he made. It was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then on the seventh day, God finished the work he'd been doing. On the seventh day, he rested from all his work, blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he had rested from all the work of creating he had done. What does it not say about the seventh day? It doesn't say, and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. Why not? Because it's still the seventh day. The whole point of the first six days was to get to the seventh day, set up the kingdom, set up the computer so that it can be used. Somebody is on the throne. We are still in the seventh day. So our invitation to rest is we rest in the knowledge that God is on the throne and therefore we're not on the throne. And he will be with us to partner with us in our working and our playing and our resting. Sometimes we do nothing. Sometimes we do lots. But we're always resting in his kingship and his being on the throne and his presence and his power. But now this is going to come to a point in the second chapter of Genesis. You might remember this. Uh, God puts the man in the Garden of Eden. Then it says in verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. 
Now, it used to be when I would read this, I would think, it seems kind of arbitrary. Why does God do this? He could have just not made that stupid tree and not made up any rule, and then human beings would be fine. Plus, when they fell, it's not just that they got in trouble, we got in trouble for what they did. That doesn't seem very fair. So let's pay to the writer or editor of Genesis for a moment the compliment of assuming that he was high enough IQ not to be self-contradictory. And what this story is really about as it's being given, remember Genesis was written for people, for the people of Israel. as They were trying to do God's work in their own lives. Um, this is not an explanation of how things got to be the way they are. This is a description of how things are. This is a description of the human problem that every one of us has. And the idea is that there is a moral order to life. There is a moral reality to it. And I can embrace it. I can submit myself to it. I can honor it. I can obey it wholeheartedly. Or I can defy it. I can resist it. That's what's going on in this rule that at first glance can seem kind of arbitrary. Uh, this is from a writer named Rusty Reno about the role of obedience in life. I was thinking uh, this very countercultural conversation in our day. One bumper sticker that you are not likely to see. My child is an obedient pupil at Nietzsche Elementary School. We think of obedience as robotic, mindless conformity that we actually don't admire. But that's a deep misunderstanding. Now, the question today is, who's on the throne? Here's what Reno writes. Because we can obey, we are teachable. We can be guided, trained, directed. We can be changed from who we presently are into something more focused, more developed, more perfect. So, for instance, our natural capacity for language can be trained into an ability to read. Our native mathematical skills can be shaped into an advanced knowledge. Our bodies can be strengthened by good coaching. Our moral character given sharp outline by high expectations. The teacher gives assignments. The coach barks orders. The parent lays down rules. From the beginning, therefore, the commandment that calls for human obedience is God's grace. Law and our capacity to be law-abiding is the motor of our transformation. It is the engine that moves us from the sixth day toward fellowship with God in the seventh, where he is on the throne. It is our capacity to be coachable, to learn to obey, that actually gives us freedom. Because if I'm always doing whatever impulse grabs me at the moment, I am never actually free. So here's the picture of healthy obedience to God, actually of discipleship to Jesus from a movie you may or may not have seen from about 40 years ago called The Karate Kid. And Mr. Miyagi, I think it is, offers to teach Daniel, who's tired of being picked on by bullies, the art of karate. And what he says is, I will make with you a sacred pact. I will teach you and you will learn. I promise to teach but you must promise to learn. I say you do, no questions. That's the deal. And so Daniel does. And then Mr. Moragi gives him what seemed to be kind of arbitrary assignments, kind of strange rules. First to wax his car 
And if you've seen this, it's quite a famous line. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. And then paint the fence. And, and so Daniel doesn't understand this fully. He does what he is commanded to do. But eventually he just uh, blows a gasket and says, Mr. Miyagi, you're, you're just a tyrant. You just want slave labor. That's all you want. And then Mr. Miyagi explains and he begins to throw a punch. And Daniel, because it's now in his muscle memory, wax on, wax off, paint the fence, he's immediately able to defend himself. Now he understands there is a reason for this training. He was being empowered to do what he couldn't otherwise do. Why didn't Mr. Miyagi just tell him that in the beginning? Why didn't he explain it first? Because Daniel's going to be given great power, but Mr. Miyagi recognizes that... Uh, he must first of all learn humility and submission. He must be willing to surrender his own will. Otherwise, he will use his power to do great damage. The Japanese educator, philosopher, musician Suzuki put it like this, character first, then ability. And it's always that order in the kingdom. Character first, then ability. And the temptation, humanly speaking, is I want to be on the throne, gratification first, ability first, the capacity to seize what I want. So today, I remember I am not on the throne. I, I must learn submission and humility. I don't know best. There is someone that knows better. Obedience rightly understood, not robotic, mindless conformity, wholehearted thoughtful, deep, humble submission to the good that I'm not in charge of making up. That is central to our training as a person. That's why the presence of the law, moral goodness, and the demand that we conform ourselves to it is present in the garden even before the fall. So today, God on the throne what is one area in which you can obey God? Where's some place where you will do something today simply because Jesus said to do it? Be generous. Give to someone who asks you. Some moment today, instead of trying to be served, served. Some moment today when you're thinking about what to do with your mind, whatever things are true and noble and right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about that, even just for a moment. Today, uh, if being on social media is taking your mind in the wrong direction, get off. Today, he's on the throne. We are learning to obey. There is an obedient pupil disciple somewhere in the kingdom today, and that could be you. End of teaching, beginning of your day with God. Thanks for joining us. My name is Tim. I'm a part of the team here at Become New. If you'd like to receive the emails that go along with each video, you can let us know at becomenew.com slash subscribe. Or if you'd like to receive a text alert whenever we release a new video, you can text the word become to the number 855-888-0444. 
If you have a prayer request, please let us know. You can text that request to that same number, 855-888-0444. There's a group of us who meet every day to pray over those requests. So we look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.